You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Exodus Trail Cameras. Now, it's summertime, and that means it's time to start getting our trail cameras ready and our trail cameras out to start capturing pictures of velvet bucks. And our friends at Exodus are kicking things off with Velvet Fest. Now, what is Velvet Fest? Long story short, Velvet Fest is the opportunity for you to win a variety of different prizes just by purchasing Exodus Trail Cameras, one of the best trail cameras on the market. Now, until July 12th, when you purchase any trail camera, you will be automatically entered into a drawing to win a variety of prizes from companies like Wicked Tree Gear, Maven Rifle Scopes, Tethered Tree Saddles, and of course, Exodus Trail Cameras. Be sure to follow Exodus on Facebook and Instagram, and be sure to visit ExodusOutdoorGear.com for more information on Velvet Fest. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast brought to you by Vortex Optics. Hopefully, everybody had a great weekend, and hopefully, uh, you're staying warm. I don't know about you, but today, I went fishing with my wife for a little bit, went fishing with the kids, and uh, it was hot out, Uh, and uh, I tell you what, we had all this rain come through, and it made it hard for the farmers to get their crops in, and you can tell... uh, through the fields all over the all over my area of where I live in Iowa that there's lots of fields that haven't been planted and now uh, in the southern part of the state we're in somewhat of a dry spell and we haven't had rain for a while so they they haul ass to get their crops in the ground and now we haven't had uh, rain uh, there's places where the the corn's looking good and then there's places where it almost looks like the leaves are starting to roll up because they haven't had water in a while and uh, I hope we don't run into a situation like last year or was it last year or two years ago where we had kind of a big drought during the summer months and uh, the next thing you know we are starting to see crop damage because of no water and high heat and so uh so i hope uh, we get a little rain because rain is good i checked my trail cameras uh yesterday and let me tell you i'm very happy with the first card pull i only i was wearing shorts and i have a couple that i can drive up to and 
one that I checked, uh, it's real easy. Hop out of the car, kind of pop into a little opening into the fence, through the fence, and it's right there. The other one I pulled up to it, and it's just a wall of poison ivy between my truck and the camera, and I was like, uh, it's not worth it, so I'll come back at a later date and check it out. But uh, I have a couple returning customers uh, as far as uh, returning deer are concerned that I'm uh, looking forward to see if, um, you know, if they stick around getting a little bit closer to the hunting season. I could put uh, put a game plan together for a couple of these deer and I'll be checking my trail cameras a couple times throughout the season or throughout the summer to take inventory and uh, I was in the area so that's why I checked them today. Next time I check them will pro- won't probably be until August and um I'm pretty, I don't know, checking trail cameras is like one of my favorite things to do. I don't know why. I just love seeing new deer or the most updated pictures, whatever. And uh, big velvet bucks are always awesome to look at. So there's that. Now, on today's podcast, we're going to be talking with Justin Jensen. And he's currently living in Idaho doing... I guess uh, working for the Department of Natural Resources out in Idaho, and that's what today's topic is about. We talk a lot about how he went to school uh, for, you know, uh, a biologist or I guess a natural sciences degree. He got a job in South Dakota right out of college, and then he ended up moving to Idaho to do research on different animals like he did when he was in uh, South Dakota and that's what today's podcast is about basically working for the Department of Natural Resources the studies that he's done the research the data and uh, I always thought uh, it would be cool to have a job like this so that is why I I don't know I wanted to, to talk about this on a podcast so uh, that's what we're doing today before we get into today's podcast dude go check out primearchery.com or go try to find uh, a local prime dealer in your area and go shoot a prime bow go test out a prime bow if you haven't picked out your bow this year which you really should have by now but if you haven't uh, man go shoot a prime it's one of those bows where I think you're really going to like it. It's designed and built by a team of bow hunters, right? These guys are hardcore bow hunters and uh, they design products that are meant to be used by bow hunters. And uh, I've, I absolutely love my CT3. Uh, It's, it's uh, basically the, the prime logic, but a longer axle to axle. Uh, I'm shooting you know, 29 inch draw at 70 pounds, hauling ass, uh, really quiet bow, no, no hand shock at all, really good energy transfer through the arrow, and uh, dude, I'm in love with it, so go check out primearchery.com, check out all their bows, other than that, have a good day, and enjoy the podcast. All right, joining me today, Mr. Justin Jensen, how you doing, man? Good. How about yourself, Dan? Can't complain, man. I tell you what, um, I'm getting fired up for my mule deer hunt uh, that we got uh, coming up. And part of that, of me getting fired up, is because of you. Um, uh, when I kind of made it public on social media and through the podcast that I was thinking about doing a, a South Dakota mule deer hunt this year, you reached out to me and said, hey, man, I used to live in, in South Dakota. And, uh, you know, here 
we started talking. You gave me some pointers and whatnot. And uh, that day is getting closer, and the tag is now available to buy online. And uh, they've kind of switched a whole bunch of things up in the in the state. But uh, you're part of the reason I'm so jacked for this mule deer hunt. Well, good. It should be a heck of a hunt. It's a lot of fun hunt out there, a lot of stuff to glass up and a lot of country to cover that's for sure yeah absolutely so there's that but before we get into today's podcast which we're going to talk about a whole bunch of different things um why don't you tell everybody where you're from or where you live now and then uh what do you do for a living uh i grew up in moorhead minnesota uh kind of west or northwest central minnesota i guess and uh, I currently live in Moscow, Idaho, about 30 minutes north of Lewiston and nine miles west or nine miles east of uh, the Washington state line. Gotcha. And I work for the Army Corps of Engineers as a wildlife habitat uh, technician right now. Gotcha. And, and that is what we're going to talk about today. Uh, we're going to talk about your experience working in the... I don't know what's the what's the term and like the the natural resources department something like that. Yeah, natural resources field, I guess, is okay. kind of what we go by. Yeah, so let's go all let's go all the way back for a bit and let's talk about what made you decide that you wanted to work in the natural resources outside outdoors type of space. Well, a lot of that had to do with my dad and getting me in the outdoors and uh man there's pictures of me on the dock in a stroller with a rod in my hand before i could walk so I've been, <laughs> yeah i've been fishing and uh loving the outdoors pretty much before i could walk so uh definitely had a love for it right away uh we i was very fortunate to grow up with uh 160 acres of private land that my uh great my great grandpa got, um, back in the late 1800s for a farm or whatever. So we have our own hunting land in Minnesota and got to grow up, uh, hunting whitetails out there with my dad and grandpa and uncle and sister. Nice. And then, uh, yeah. So it sounds like you've been outside your whole life. Oh, almost every day. (laughs) I can't stand inside. It sucks. Yeah. Yeah, dude. I tell you what, when I was sitting in my cubicle, I felt like I was rotting. My soul was like in a cage and I had to get outside. So um, was this was this a career path, something that you had decided right out of high school? Like, hey, I want to be outside. I want to work outside. I want to uh, work for the Department of Natural Resources or something like that. Or I want to be a conservation officer. Did you go to school for that or is that something that kind of changed after college no uh i remember watching um tom miranda on espn with my dad on saturday mornings yep. and i remember him doing like a sheep hunt or something and i told my dad i was going to be a bighorn sheep biologist when i was eight so <laughs> i've kind of thought about it for quite a while or it's been on my mind for quite a while what i wanted to do with my life yeah so you had it figured out real early yep right. yep so you go, you know, you want to get a job in the outdoors, uh, you know, some, some form of natural resource, right? And then as you, I'm assuming that as you start to 
grow up and you start getting closer to this goal, um, you know, you're in college, uh, you figure out that there's, there's water and fish, there's land and big game animals and small game animals and mountains and prairie and all these different ecosystems. How did you, did you, I guess, did you know what one of those areas or ecosystems that you wanted to either specialize in or work in the most? Uh, I always had a big adventure at heart, I guess. And, um, one of my goals in life is to just take as many different big game animals as possible. I mean, obviously I'm not going to do anything crazy cause you don't make a ton of money in this field, but just do as much as I possibly can and enjoy the mountains. I, I definitely love the mountains and they've been calling me forever. So I, uh, yeah, big game has always been, uh, strong to my heart and kind of what I've gravitated towards when I've been looking for jobs. Gotcha. Okay. All right. So, uh, what was your degree in college then? Um, I think it's, it's like, uh, technically it varies by college, but I think South Dakota state went as, um, natural resource science or science like that. Okay. All right. Natural resource science. Um, and are you done with college now? Yep, I graduated college in December of 2015. Okay, so you're three years out. And what was your first job, or did you have any type of internship while you were in school? Um, yep, I think the first job I got was a goose depredation technician in May of 2014. I think I was a, uh, a junior going on, or... Right before junior year. Gotcha. All right. So what did what what was that task all about? So I worked up in um, Webster, South Dakota, which is kind of in the northeast corner, uh, in the Glacial Lakes area. Tons of water up there. And there was a ton of geese. And all these farmers would go put their beans right up next to all the ponds and lake edges. And these geese just had heydays on their bean fields. So our job was to go out and put up electric fence along all their bean fields and try to keep the geese out. Okay. And then go back. Yeah. Go back in the later of the summer and pull all the fence or whatever. But Gotcha. So, uh, the geese were causing a lot of crop damage. Yeah, that's correct. Okay. All right. And so, did hunting ever come into play as a way to stop these geese from damaging the, the, the bean fields? Yeah. So when I was there in South Dakota, I know they had a early, a goose season started like August, early August. And I remember uh, the two guys I worked for, for uh, game fishing parks and a couple other kids went out on that opening day. And I think they shot like 75 geese. And I think the limit was 15 a person or something like that. So they, they just put a herd on them in early August. So that's kind of one of the way they try to help a little bit of the depredation issues. Gotcha. So your guys' job at that point was to come up with a plan uh, or a solution to this farmer's problem, right? Because if he's going to bitch to someone, he's going to bitch to the Department of Natural Resources. They have to come up with an idea and did – did the fence idea work? Cause I, I think, you know, like uh, a goose has wings. It can just fly over the fence and hop into the bean field. 
So a lot of uh, where they put that fence, I mean, it was just kind of along the water's edge. And when we were putting the fence out, a lot of those geese um, had already hatched their um, goslings. So once they hatch their goslings, they kind of molt their feathers. So for there's a period of time where they can't fly in the summer. Yep. And they won't if they got their goslings. So they'll just stay in that water and go somewhere else if they can't gotcha. get in there. And the fence was electrified, so they get a little bit of a jolt trying to cross there too. Yeah. Okay. So then, uh, is there a, there's a major flyway over South Dakota, right? Oh, the central flyway just outside of, uh, campus of Brookings is amazing. It was some of the best duck I've ever had. Right. And so when a guy in Iowa, I don't get to experience that. I mean, I've seen a large flock of geese fly overhead, like a really big one. Um, I would mm-hmm. estimate it in the thousand, like in the thousand mark uh, during the fall, but out there, right? They have that times a thousand. <laughs> you can go out in the spring and see snow geese on the open water on the the lakes, and I, I know I've seen flocks of forty to fifty thousand snow geese all together, which is just unreal to see that many birds all clumped on a piece of open water and it is crazy how loud they are. Yeah. Do, uh, are th- so are they overpopulated? Yeah. That's why they have that, um, spring, um, spring snow use season. It's because they're trying to reduce the numbers. Um, they do a lot of damage to the tundra when they're up there yep. and they want to help lower the numbers and, um, protect the tundra a little bit more. Gotcha. Okay. All right. So that was kind of your internship while you were in school. Uh, once you got out of school, um, how did the, how did the job hunt go? What, what's that like? Um, this field is a lot of, um, not what you know, but who, you know, it is very, it is a very small field and everybody kind of knows everybody. Um, I did have another job in, in school, which was a a research technician where we worked on our we had a um, wildlife research station where we had 60 bighorn sheep and I think like 65 white-tailed deer that they were doing masters and PhD projects on right outside of campus so I got to work there for a year and a half and uh, I actually did a undergrad um, research project on bighorn sheep lambs and I was able to go to a national conference um, and present my findings from uh, my undergrad research. And at this national conference, um, you meet a lot of people from all over the country. Well, I met one of the regional um, supervisors from Western South Dakota up there, and he kind of hung out with all the South Dakota state kids while we were in, up, I think it was in Winnipeg, uh, Canada that year. And uh, just hanging out and talking to him, uh, having a few beers after the the day of um, research meetings and stuff going on, got to talking to him, and he seemed like he uh, he wanted me to work for him. And two weeks later, I got an email from him and said, "Hey, Justin, I I know we talked up in Winnipeg, and I'd love for you to come work for me, and uh, you should apply for this position. It starts in January." 
So I graduated in December, so it worked out perfect. I could just jump into that job out in Rapid City in January and start doing some fun stuff out there. Okay. So uh, it, this this job kind of fell into your lap then? Yeah, for okay. sure. Cool, cool. Um, so you got this job now, You're did, and you had to move to Rapid City? Yep, that's correct. Okay. So you you get this job now tell me a little bit about what this job was um what it entailed what your daily tasks were maybe some of the big projects that you were working on all that stuff uh yeah so i was like a wildlife technician i think is the proper term for us and basically you're just kind of a hired hand and help the full-time biologists with a ton of their field work um, when I first got out there uh, in January, one of the first things I think our project was to collar a bunch of mule deer does and mule deer yearlings. So they had a helicopter capture scheduled for mostly, I think, middle of January to early February. And we'd go out, they had a helicopter crew come in and net gunning mule deer in the Black Hills and then net gunning um, mule deer outside of the Black Hills. So they would net gun the deer, um, hobble them up, throw them in a, a bag and fly them right back to us. We would kind of work them up, which means we would take blood samples, um, check the, the doe if she's pregnant and record that data and then slip a um, telemetry collar on, on them and let them go. Okay. So that was one of the first I did when I was out there. So uh, someone would actually go out, catch them in a net. Uh, did they give them any type of like sedatives to calm them down for the helicopter ride? Um, I think sometimes they do. Sometimes they don't. It depends on how far they're slinging them. Gotcha. Um, I know they they bring them back. They got a, I mean, a mask covering their eyes and gotcha. their their feet are tied together. So okay. So uh, you did all this uh, testing on them. You tested the blood work. Uh, you checked to see if they were pregnant. You collared them, and then you would fly them back to where they where they were originally captured at. No, we would just turn them loose right there at the the field station right there. Oh, okay. So how far fr- uh, how far from the field station to where they're actually capturing them? <laughs> It kind of varied. I know they sometimes they'd have trouble trouble finding deer where they would have to go five miles, you know. Okay, so and it's not they're a ways. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay, it's not like they're traveling a hundred miles or fifty miles or anything like that. No, five ten. Okay, I think is most what you're going through. Gotcha. All right. So, what were what were the point of the tests? Like this data that you're collecting. Why were you collecting this data from these mule deer? And uh, what were you hoping to um, get from that? Oh, if I remember right, it's been a few years. I think it was um, looking at like fawn survival. So they wanted to see what our pregnancy rates were were, and also put a bunch of collars on these yearlings to make sure um, or see if they make it through the next winter and make it through that um, crucial time period for them. Um, we also would go out in the spring and put a ton of collars on fawns. And so their collars that last on fawns are not permanent. They only last about a year. 
and that was a majority of what that um, portion of captures were to figure out, you know, how many fawns are surviving, and um, if they do die, uh, what got them? Was it a coyote? Was it a mountain lion? Was it the winter? You know, what what's going on? How many fawns are making it to that first year? Because that first year is so important for all these deer. Yeah. So do, do you have any data that you could share with us? Like, uh, um, do you remember any of the, the results of, the you know, this because I, I feel like that is a big undertaking to go out, capture all these animals, do the blood work, figure, you know, all that stuff, and then try to have accurate data on the back end when, let's say, well, this collar is maybe showing that this deer hasn't moved in a day, so we're assuming that it's dead. Um, and then you come up on a carcass. How do you know how it died? So it depends on like what you're doing and the type of collar. So the biggest thing, um, there's like two types of collars. One is just a telemetry collar. And then they also have um, GPS tracking collars. So the GPS ones are a lot more fancy and they will send a signal to your computer that will um, give you a, a point of where that animal is every 12 hours. Okay. So when that uh, animal stops moving for, I think it's like set for four hours. And if that collar doesn't move for four hours, it'll send a mortality signal and to your computer and it'll send you an email or a text that says, Hey, this collar is on mortality. That makes it nice because then as soon as you know that you can get out there right away and figure out, you know, what type of predator got on, especially out here in Idaho. Um, those were the type of collars we were using out here, the GPS collars. And it was big to figure out, was it a lion kill? Was it wolves or was it, um, scavenged by black bears at all? Um, they all kind of kill differently. And if you get there sooner, you can kind of figure out what got it, which is kind of cool. Gotcha. Any, uh, any crazy stories from that, uh, that data or like, do you, do you actually go out and check to see, like, I don't know, have, have you ever had a mortality uh, signal come through and then you're like, well, it must be over this ridge. You walk up over this ridge and there's like mountain lions eating a mule deer. <laughs> uh, nothing that crazy. Um, most of the callers I did in the Black Hills were pretty, pretty easy. I mean, we had some in the Black Hills and then a lot of deer collared outside the Black Hills and the Badlands type stuff. Yeah. Um, out here, I haven't stumbled on a predator or anything. We went and picked up one collar and there was fresh bear um, scat like all around, which was a little nerve wracking knowing that the black bear was pretty dang close feeding on the elk carcass, but yeah, nothing too crazy. So you're currently living in Idaho and doing some of the same type of research there as well, right? Yeah. Um, a lot of, it's a little more out of, or last, last year I was doing elk collar, um, like retrieval. The lady I was working for, I actually worked for at SDSU and she, um, offered me a position to work for her last year. 
and I came out here and uh, she had a ton of different elk all over the Clearwater region, which is kind of central Idaho uh, around Lewiston in that area. And um, we'd go out when the collars would drop, fall like fall off, or if they elk got a mortality killed or something like that, we'd go out and pick up those elk collars and uh, figure out what happened to them. Yeah. Okay. So before we get into Idaho, any other cool uh, research or experiments or whatever that you did while you were in uh, South Dakota? Yeah. So we, uh, a lot of that capture stuff was fun. I really, I really loved mule deer fawn capture. It is just like hunting. Basically we got to go early in the morning you're glassing up for does and watching these deer. And, um, so the, the does will drop their fawn somewhere, you know, after it's born and then kind of leave it. And basically we get to sit and watch them. And, uh, then you try to pick up where their fawn is and go in there and put a collar on it and stuff. Um, there was one time I was glassing this doe. She had a fawn and I walked over there. Fawn was laying right there. You know, when you walk up on a fawn, usually they'll sit there and play dead. And this fawn did the same thing. Didn't move. And then, um, I was doing all my research. I had to weigh it. I put it in a, a grocery bag to weigh it. I took measurements of the hoof. I sexed it, made sure, or figured out if it was a buck or a doe. And I did all that and take the GPS waypoint. And then I had to, all I had to do was slip the collar on her. And all of a sudden she erupted out of the bag and took off running. And I had forgot to put the collar on. And so all that data would have been lost if I would have lost this phone. And I'm chasing her across this meadow. <laughs> she is sprinting and I am sprinting and we make it about 150 yards and we both start slowing down. Like this fawn starts walking. I start walking. We're both way out of breath. <laughs> and uh, some, one of the things you can kind of do to them uh, to get them to stop is just yell at them. So I just kind of yelled like, Hey, and she finally dropped down and I was able to pick her up and walk her back. And I'm cussing this little fawn out for running away. And I walk back, flip the collar on her and let her go or whatever. And I'm picking up all my gear and I can't find my phone. And I think I slipped it in my sweatshirt pocket and I'm chasing this fawn down. It fell out of my uh, pocket and I never found it. Oh, crazy. <laughs> so that, yeah, that was pretty funny. So somewhere out in the public lands of South Dakota sits a cell phone that... Uh, yep, for sure. Gotcha. Uh, that, which brings me up to, brings a question, is all this uh, research done on public ground or is it on private ground as well? No, they definitely did both uh, public and private land. Um, uh, I know South Dakota Game Fishing Parks works great with their landowners to um, get different um, areas for um, collared animals and you want to mix of animals on public land and private land to kind of figure out um, one of that factors of what can happen to deer is hunter mortality. So right. uh, you want to figure out what, you know, what the difference is on public land versus private land as well. Okay, cool. So uh, you did a little 
fawn capturing, um, and I take it, and this is again me assuming because I I have a feeling we think the same way. While you're out there doing all this research, you're also scouting, looking for shooter deer, right? <laughs> yeah, that was one of the perks of the job, uh, especially in the fall. The fall was a lot of our surveys, and um, I think we did antelope surveys in August and then deer surveys in September when I was there. Okay. And a lot of that was just literally driving roads and counting animals, which was definitely very convenient. (laughs) So, uh, did you ever, because here's what would happen with me, right? You see, you're driving down the road, you're counting. And then all of a sudden you see a, a giant mule deer buck and then you forget to count all the deer that are with it. And then you just like, you start glassing it. Where's he going? All right. I got to try to get on him, you know, this weekend when I have some free time. Did that, did that ever happen to you? Uh, I know I definitely glassed up some big bucks. Um, some, a lot of the times they're on private, so I wasn't able to go after them or anything like that. Gotcha. But it gives me different ideas of where to, look for deer that's for sure you know you find a big pile of does on a piece of public you know come the rut those bucks are going to be right there with them right absolutely okay all right so uh anything else before you moved out to uh um idaho now i guess my question is did you do any other animal research like fish or small game or anything like birds like that in south dakota um yeah, so one other fun thing I did out there, I guess, in the, the first winter I was there was being able to be on a helicopter um, elk survey okay. in February. Um, they flew transects across the whole Black Hills, which is, encompasses all, or all South Dakota and that sliver in Wyoming. And I think we had three helicopters going for three weeks straight, like all day, which is pretty crazy. Wow. That's a a big undertaking. Yeah. Um, Obviously, I didn't have anything with planning or anything like that. I was just one of the kids who has got to go up and fly with them and take some notes. That's for sure. But, man, that was cool just to fly over the Black Hills in a helicopter a few different times and – working elk to ball them up so you'd be flying these transects just kind of back and forth and uh you're looking out the window and somebody goes okay there's elk right there the helicopter will fly down and you kind of want to ball ball the group up because they're in the winter so they're all kind of herded into bigger herds in the winter and they ball them up and then try to push them into the open and we try to count them to figure out how many animals is in that herd um, and sometimes I was a little more challenging than that. That helicopter was zigging and zagging and trying to push animals together, which was pretty fun. Uh, I know one of, uh, if I remember right, one of the biggest groups they found and got a picture of was like 1200 elk in one herd in South Dakota. Yep. Holy cow. I think. If I remember right, the total for the whole Black Hills is like 8,500 animals or something like that. Yeah. So quite a few elk, that's for sure. That's awesome. 
So there is a healthy herd in uh, South Dakota in the Badlands or in the uh, Black Hills. Yeah, definitely. They Those elk are doing well. I think one of their only predators besides humans is mountain lions. I'm sure coyotes get a few calves here and there, but mostly just mountain lions taking a few. But yeah. Crazy. We're the winners. All right. All right, so uh, it sounds like they they kept you busy with all these projects. Is is this something? Are these kind of projects happen every single year uh, to get consistent data, or are they only happening when the budget allows, or when uh, you know, like every three years or something like that? Um, it depends on the project. Uh, I know, like that helicopter elk survey they said they were flying it every three years just because it is such a big undertaker or big um, overtaking of funding for three helicopters for three weeks straight and all the manpower and stuff it takes to run that. But yeah. other projects, um, it depends on the project. I know um, some projects we helped like a master's student who had uh, a two-year project and we would go out and capture uh, bighorn sheep lambs for them and put collars on them and that we would only go out for two years for that project and then um, other projects you know lasted four or five years so it just kind of depends on what they're doing yeah okay that's awesome man all right so why did you then decide to leave South Dakota and take this job in Idaho, like change of scenery or change of animal? Um, no, it wasn't that, uh, basically this, it's not hard to get a. It's hard to get a full-time job. This field is so competitive. There's a ton of people in it. And a lot of what you got to do is just jump from job to job. And I mean, my resume is six pages long of different jobs I've done and stuff like that in the wildlife field. So it takes a lot of sacrifice to figure out, you know, keep a job and keep your resume building to help yourself get into the field permanently. That's for sure. Gotcha. Um, the lady I work for at South Dakota state, she took a job out here in Idaho and, um, I was talking to her on the phone one day and she's like, Hey, I need, uh, I need a technician for this next summer and you should come out and work for me. So it didn't take a whole lot of convincing for me to want to come to Idaho with just all the hunting opportunities out here. So jumped, uh, jumped on that boat and moved out here last March. So, Oh, nice. Okay. So, so then, uh, these jobs that you're doing, are they, they're not full-time jobs. They're just kind of like, uh, like, okay, we, we need you for about a year and then once this project's done, then we're, then, you know, we don't need you anymore. Kind of like contract. Yeah. Work. Yeah. Kind of like contract work. Uh, a lot of, some of my jobs have been eight to 10 months long. Some of them have been, you know, five months long. And I, I took one in Nevada that was only a three month job from March to May. So it varies. Gotcha. Okay. So you move out to Idaho. Uh, how different was that? Uh, for you, you know, moving from South Dakota, which, you know, there's time, there's parts of South Dakota that are hilly and have some terrain, but a lot of it's flat, right? Uh, rolling Hills, whatever. And then you go to Idaho, which there's places out out there that can just be straight rugged. (laughs) 
Yeah, definitely. Um, out here is very thick with trees and very steep everywhere you look. And that has been a challenge for me a little bit. I mean, spending a couple years hunting in South Dakota where you can glass uh, miles and see animals everywhere to here it is trees everywhere and you can't see 10 yards when you're walking through the trees. So it's been a challenge, especially in just trying to figure out hunting out here. I haven't quite figured it out a whole lot yet, but yeah. And well, you've been there less than a year or was it the previous March? So you've been there a year plus one full year. One full I got year. one hunting season. Yeah. Okay. All right. So, uh, this new job in Idaho, uh, I take it you did some, you said you did some collaring of some elk and mortality rate studies and that kind of stuff. Uh, anything else that you're doing with this current job? So this current job, I'm working for uh, the Army Corps of Engineers. Um, he, The guy I work for, he uh, has like 5,000 acres of Army Corps land around this big reservoir that is designated for elk wintering habitat. And uh, his goal is to create more winter forage for elk. So I've been going out there and helping him um, check plants. And uh, a big part of what he's trying to do is um, create this one type of plant. Is Like elk love this plant called red stem and red stem ceanothus. And a lot of what he's trying to do is put more of that on the ground for the elk for winter. So get to go out there and spend a few days in the mount or spend my week out in the mountains and fishing after work and just loving life out there. That's for sure. Well, that's awesome, man. All right. So, uh, do you like Idaho better than South Dakota so far? Oh, I always have a place in my heart for South Dakota, especially Western South Dakota. Uh, I'm still building deer points out there, so I'll be back someday for sure. But the opportunities out here for hunting is pretty crazy. Uh, for 150 bucks as a resident, you get your hunting and fishing license. You get an elk tag, a deer tag, a bear tag, wolf tag, lion tag, turkey tag, and you can shoot multiple of everything if you really want, and it's crazy. And that's... That's for a resident, and that's all everything you just mentioned for 150 bucks. Yeah, everything I just mentioned for 150 bucks for a resident. I know non-residents can get two elk tags if they really want, and two deer tags if they really want. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I had a this trip out to. Let me see. I'm looking at a map right now. Stanley. I want to say it's Stanley. Uh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, Stanley, uh, and then north of there, there's uh, some a place that I was looking at, and no, man, where's it at? Let me see here. Yeah, I just want to make sure. Yep, Stanley, and uh, uh, it's like a, this small little mountain town. And me and uh, another guy had plans to go out there. It fell through, and um, uh, but and then I found out that hey, you 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 can go kill a mule deer. And then you can go back in town and get another tag and kill another mule deer if you want. And I thought that was awesome. And uh, so de Idaho definitely is a sportsman's paradise as far as the number of animals you can harvest and the amount of public land that you can go take advantage of. Oh, definitely. Um, I know Idaho Fish and Game just passed a um, 
a thing where they bought access to uh, like 600,000 acres of private timberland and open it up for the public, which is pretty cool. Yeah, that's crazy. All right, so you've been there a year, and uh, you've done that elk study, and you've you're currently working on uh, that the the another elk study with the plants. Um, do you have anything else cool in your future as far as research or projects that you're that you'll be working on? There's a lot of unknowns and I have no idea what my life will take in the next two months. I think this job will go to September if I make it and I'm just trying to apply for different jobs around here and um, try to apply for some master's projects and hopefully get one of those too. Um, My wife is out here and we live uh, in Moscow together. So it's a little harder to jump around from job to job. Um, when she was still in school doing her undergrad and master's, I was able to do a lot more solo traveling, which was, I mean, I'm very grateful she was able to let me go run around and chase different jobs all over the country. And um, now it's a little more settled. So we get to stay in the spot a little bit more. And I definitely, we both like Idaho quite a bit with opportunities here. So. Hopefully get a stick around, but we'll see. Yeah, that's awesome. All right, so let's see. What is your dream job then in the in this field? Oh, I'd love to be like populations biologist. Uh, just all the fun stuff they get to do, and and the big game is everything that's been in my heart between elk, deer, antelope. I mean, all that sort of thing. That would be pretty sweet someday i'll get there yeah what uh is there any particular species i mean you mentioned that when you were eight years old you said you wanted to be a bighorn sheep biologist is that still an animal that you would love to do some like research on some projects on yeah definitely so i was able to uh do a a couple years of bighorn sheep work and that definitely uh put my heart in it. I I worked at that research unit where we had 60 bighorn sheep and I was able to, uh, I mean, we had them on fences, just like, you know, a deer farm or something like that, but it was sheep research. So I was able to handle a bunch of bighorn sheep there. I, uh, I was able to collar some bighorn sheep lambs in the Black Hills. And then I went to Nevada for a three-year job or a three-month job. And I was able to help a PhD student capture some desert uh bighorn sheep lambs and i like to joke and tell people i'm halfway to my lamb slam because i'll probably <laughs> never afford a ram slam but i've collared two of the four sheep which i think counts yeah hey it's like hunting it's like catch and release hunting right sure is <laughs> that's awesome okay so that's what you do for a living that's your aspirations that's some of the uh um Oh, I knew what I wanted to ask you. Is there any kind of uh, any project that you've done that the listeners, the outcome of the research, uh, the listeners may find interesting, if you can remember any of it? Um, so I wasn't. I was just a part of the research. I wasn't writing out the plans and that sort of thing. Gotcha. Um, I think some of that deer research might be in 
South Dakota's like deer management plans. Um, they might give some of their research in their public deer plan. Um, other than that, I'm not really sure. I know the bighorn sheep uh, research that I worked on, um, my boss from South Dakota and the lady out here, she is still finishing up her dissertation. So her paper for that should be coming out, I think, in a few months. And people can read her research on all the captive bighorn sheep work that I did. Cool. All right. All right. So there's there's the project side of things. Now let's talk about the hunting side of things because, um, like I like I said uh, at the beginning, uh, when I mentioned I was going to go out to South Dakota on this mule deer hunt, uh, you reached out to me and said, "Hey, man, here's some pointers and tips and stuff." So now for everybody here, um, you know, without getting into too much detail of where uh, I'm going to be hunting, what should I expect uh, from this mule deer hunt? as far as maybe the strategy or the entire, the entire hunt itself. Remember, I'm going to be going with another guy and I will be using archery equipment. Yep. Um, it's definitely a lot of wide open. There's not a ton of trees out there. There's pockets out, um, in the badlands or the Western type stuff that's outside of the black Hills that has juniper trees. And, um, you can kind of find them in there. I mean, there's other areas where it's just rocks and grass and it's pretty crazy seeing where these deer make a living, especially how dry it can be. Um, expect some cactus on the ground. Uh, I know I've put some stocks on bucks and flipped the boots off and I'm within like a hundred yards of this buck and I step in a pile of cactus and I have to walk back to my boots and just, uh, said well maybe i'll sneak with my boots a little bit further and pluck cactus out of my feet <laughs> so get ready for some cactus okay so get ready for some cactus but as far as uh the numbers out there uh will i be seeing i know that there's pockets of them but will i be seeing enough bucks you know and and for me i'm not necessarily really looking for an absolute giant um, I would love a good representation of the species, but um, on a first-time hunt like this, I'm willing to shoot just about anything just for the experience, right? So uh, what's the numbers out there? I mean, will I be seeing a good amount of does? Will I be seeing a good amount of bucks? Um, will I have multiple stocks potentially throughout the, uh, throughout the, the week that we're there? Uh, all that stuff. Uh, so yeah, it's been a few years since I hunted there. I think the last, I think I hunted there in 20, the fall of 2017. Um, I'm not sure what this winter, last winter did to their deer numbers at all. So I can't give you a good estimate of what their population is looking like today. Um, I know there's good deer, uh, out, outside there, outside of the black or the black Hills. Um, you definitely have to earn them a little bit. I mean, if you're willing to walk, at least a mile away from the road and get away from the people that are just driving glassing from the roads, you shouldn't have any problems finding deer. Um, it's so open out there that, I mean, you can glass for miles in either direction and that makes it a lot more fun to be able to glass all over and up your odds of finding animals. Yeah. Okay. And then, uh, as far as your experiences out there, uh, when, when you were hunting in South Dakota, 
how did how did how was that learning curve like that spot and stock learning curve like first you got to locate them then you got to try to spot you know um sneak up on them and and get within bow range or maybe you were a gun hunter i don't know uh walk us through that learning curve yeah so growing up in minnesota we just sat in tree stands like everybody else in the midwest and sat there and waited for your deer to come by out there it is a whole different ball game being able to you know, glass up an animal, figure out where they're bedding and figure out how to play the wind and sneak in. Right. Um, one of the first things I hunted out there spot and stock was antelope. And that is definitely a challenge. (laughs) It'll, it'll make you a better hunter. Uh, I think that first year I hunted antelope out there, I put in 11 different days hunting them and I blew maybe 60 some stocks on these antelope and had a bunch of different misses and uh, miscalculations of range and wind, and they're just spooky. And I ended up getting one on the 11th day, and it was crazy just to figure out, finally get it done, I mean, after all the effort you put in. Um, But from antelope to mule deer, they're a different animal. Uh, You're definitely going to hunt them in the mornings and figure out where they're feeding, where they're going to bed. Um, and then you got to sneak into them. I mean, out there, there's a lot of rocks, dry grass, tough to be quiet. That's for sure. That's why you got to slip your boots off and kind of go with like a heavy wool sock just to help protect your feet a little bit and stay quiet as you're sneaking in. Gotcha. Okay. So should I expect to see, uh, man, I mean, what are, what are they doing? You, You mentioned in the morning, uh, you know, a morning is a good time. Are they up on their feet, going to their beds? Or what are they, do they have specific routes, let's say, like a whitetail does, where they have a bed-to-feed pattern, or do are they just roamers throughout the, the entire land? I think mule deer in general are pretty habitual, especially um, you're going to go in October, right? Uh, yeah, yep. Yeah, so they should still kind of be, a little bit habitual they haven't quite jumped into that pre-rut yet and um they're still kind of working on food so your biggest bet is go out you know right away in the morning and glass up for bucks and figure out where they're headed and usually from what i've noticed is they'll kind of pick that same bed as long as they feel safe there okay. if they haven't been buggered by a different hunter or something or spooked out by a coyote they'll pick that same bed quite a bit or that general area quite a bit. Um, once the rut comes around, they'll definitely get on their feet a little bit more and start moving, Got chasing does. Okay. Any, any tips or tricks? I mean, ha- were you ever successful on a mule deer archery hunt while you were out there? <laughs> I should have been successful. Uh, a few different misses, which uh, should have got me a deer. One was a really nice buck. Uh, it was like four by four with brow tines and he had a kicker on the side and I snuck in to him and his doe to like 35 yards and I had to come up over this little lip. And when I first spotted him, I knew there was a a juniper tree right in front of him. And I knew I was going to be able to see that juniper tree before I saw the buck. So I, I ranged the juniper tree before I snuck over and it was like 35 yards. I was like, okay, that's a chip shot. And I sneak up over the ridge, and he's bedded, uh, quartering away. 
and he had his eyes closed, I'm pretty sure, right, when I popped over. But then his eye, he could see out of the corner of his eye, and I didn't want to draw back. Well, I sat there for three minutes waiting for him to turn his head and look at his doe so I could draw back, and it never happened. I felt the wind on the back of my neck, and I'm like, okay, he's going to blow out of here because the wind's swirling. And I I rushed it. I was like, okay, it's now or never. I'm going to draw. I drew back. He stood up took three steps and stood right next to that tree and i just was so jacked up i whipped it right over his back oh man that sucks oh yeah like i hate hearing stories about that but at least the stock part of that story worked for you right yeah for sure i've i've definitely gotten uh way better at my stocking i know um last fall i was out there i was sneaking in on a smaller buck and I think there was like five mile an hour wind and just dry grass. And I was out there with a buddy and he was up on the road and you could see this buck from the road. And I told him, you should try to distract him while I'm getting in there to try to keep his head turned. And he distracted him a little too early. So that buck just didn't care. He was even sitting there on the road. And I am sneaking in on this buck and I could just see the tips of his rack. And I'm like, I thinking I'm 40 yards out and I told the guy up on the road, I texted him. I said, I I'm 40 yards out and I think I can get closer. So I just sneaking slowly. I mean, as soon as that wind picked up a little, I would move, you know, a foot and then just wait. And it took me like an hour to go, I don't know, 30 yards, 40 yards. And I finally got uh, close where I thought I was about 25 yards from him. And I saw his ear and I ranged it and my range finder said 15 yards. And I'm like, Oh crap, I'm way too close. And I went down to reach for my bow and he saw my head move and just bolted out of there. But I should have stayed back at that 35 yards. I think my range finder was hitting grass behind him or something and uh, just got a little bit too close, but that was still fun just to sneak into on a muley buck like that and get it within 15 yards. Awesome. That's awesome, man. Uh, all right. So now you're out of South Dakota. You're in a, like a completely different place. Uh, what, uh, what did you do bow hunting last year? Yeah. Uh, I had a bunch of buddies come from Minnesota and South Dakota out here, um, for an archery elk hunt. And, uh, I was definitely all of their first years, of elk hunting i was fortunate enough to harvest a cow elk in the black hills and then i got my uh, wife a cow elk in the black hills and then my sister a cow elk in the black hills so i had a little bit of elk hunting experience um we hunted for seven days and got on some bulls and uh just we are figuring it out still so we uh were unsuccessful on elk one of my buddies shot a bear. Uh, four of the five of us shot at black bears, and they were just kind of longer shots that we weren't used to. And, uh, yeah, one of us got a black bear and nothing on bulk. But this year is going to be a little bit different. I've definitely figured – I haven't figured it out yet, but I've learned a lot of the mistakes I made last year, which hopefully will help me coming into this fall. Awesome. So what do you got on the docket then for this year? Uh, I got my elk tag, uh, deer tag. I shot 
whitetail last year out here. Um, so I'm really hoping to get my mule deer. Uh, I think I'm going to go down to somewhere in central Idaho and try to get a mule deer in October. Uh, your whitetail tag up in Idaho is a long season. Uh, I think if you pick whitetail only, your archery tag goes from like end of August to sometime in like end of September, I think. And then your rifle for whitetail will go October 10th through December 1st. So you get a long time to shoot a whitetail with a rifle. And uh, everybody kind of waits to that rut time frame um, just to get a little more opportunity with bucks running around. Uh, yeah. Your mule deer, I'm pretty sure, is just that two-week window for your general tag in October. So that makes it a little tougher. Yeah. Well, good luck, man. I hope it, I hope it all works out for you. Um, I would love to okay wait so are you going to do whitetail only or are you going to chase mule deer at all uh i think i'll do white whitetail with my wife so she's got an elk and deer tag as well and we'll uh hunt whitetails in november for her and then i'm gonna go out in october and uh try to get a mule deer with with a rifle or bow uh with a rifle i'll probably do archery elk in september and then um do rifle mule deer in October. Gotcha. Awesome, man. Well, good luck to you and your wife and everybody out there. Uh, I really appreciate you taking time out of your day to uh, hop on the podcast and uh, chit chat, you know, with us. And I'd love to hear how successful you were uh, going over to Idaho because Idaho is definitely a, a place that I want to hunt again. I've been out there for one elk hunt, but uh, I have mule deer on the brain and elk hunting on the brain uh, out there as well. So uh, it's something that I'm going to be looking into further down the line. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Thanks for having me on, Dan. It's been uh, fun to chat with you and hope to do it again someday. Ladies and gentlemen, we're done with Monday's podcast. Huge shout out to Justin for taking time out of his day to chit chat with us, man. Um, You know, the world needs more people that take care of our natural resources. And uh, so thank you, Justin, for that. And uh, if you love the outdoors and you say, hey, I want to work in the outdoors, not necessarily the outdoor industry, but the outdoors as a whole, this might be a perfect job for you. So take a look at your local or statewide or regional, you know, job opportunities there and, uh, Maybe you could be a park ranger or maybe you could be a guy who goes around and collects data and does deer counts, all that kind of stuff. I'm sure there's jobs uh, that are available uh, wherever you live uh, if that's something that interests you. So uh, take a look at that. Other than that, thank you to all of you for listening to the podcast and uh, downloading every single day, man. And like I, I always say, I really appreciate it. And this would not be happening if it wasn't for you. Huge shout out to all the partners of this podcast lone wolf ripcord wasp ozonics prime and vortex optics um go out and support those companies because they support this podcast if you're not following on social follow on instagram and facebook not only for the nine finger chronicles but for the sportsman's nation as well Last but not least, or two things yet, subscribe to this podcast. Go subscribe. That tells me how many people are listening, and I love data and knowing that kind of information. 
and if you haven't seen the short film tradition, you can go to the uh, Nine Finger Chronicles Facebook page. You can go to the Sportsman's Nation YouTube channel and uh, check it out there. It's an awesome film. I'm going to be entering it into a couple of uh, short film competitions to see how it does. Uh, and I'm sure they're going to ask for votes. Uh, so I might be reaching out to you on that. Um, bah, 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 bah. I know we're all starting to get fired up for the upcoming season, but let's not forget about conservation, right? There's a lot of conservation efforts that uh, are handled this time of year. So if, you, uh, if you're looking to volunteer, or maybe you should think about volunteering, um, I don't know, just think about it. Uh, we're going to have more conservation uh, types of talks here uh, later this month and into August uh, up until the season starts. And, um, you know, as much as we like to talk about big bucks, we got to talk about conservation as well. So um, I think that's it. If you're going to be in a tree, wear your damn safety harness. Have a good week.